0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening, and if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to give a little bit of background on why we're doing Acts 17, because we did did Acts as a sermon series a few years ago. Who is here? Who remembers that we were in Acts? Okay. You guys, yeah, all right. Um, so, our next sermon series will be covering 1 Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica. So, this sermon is a precursor to those series. Also, I really, maybe you can, maybe you, maybe you can relate to this, I really wrestled on whether to call it Thessalonica or Thessalonica, right? I've heard it so many ways. I'm just going to do Thessalonica. When I typed it into Google and I said, pronounce, it said Thessalonica. I'm like, all right, we're going with what Google says. Um, not that that's my authority for most of these things. Anyways, um, so uh, Paul, in, in, as he's entering into Thessalonica, is on his second missionary journey. Uh, and he is working earnestly to spread the gospel and to plant churches throughout the Roman Empire. Silas and Timothy are, are accompanying him. They've just left, left Philippi. And uh, there it is. He's just left Philippi. I think I need to use, yeah, this one, uh, which is in this top, top, top left corner. And he's going to travel through, from Philippi. A three-day's journey is how long it's going to take. It's about 100 miles, and he's on foot, right? So uh, from Philippi, he's going to travel through Amphipolis, then through Apollonia, and then later he'll, uh, there's Thessalonica then there, after having gone through Philippi, Ephesians, Apollonia, Thessalonica. And then later he'll go 40 miles west to Berea. Um, and so he's in the region of Macedonia. It's right here, a little cut off, but that's okay. But he's, he's in that region of Macedonia. And uh, uh, Macedonia, uh, it, Thessalonica was actually the capital of Macedonia. It, Thessalonica was, was at that time, it actually is still today, the second largest city in Greece, all of Greece. It was estimated to then to be about 200,000 people in population. It was a major seaport. It was the commercial center. It of, and it was the entire province's administration center as well. Big city, big government, big opportunity for gospel influence. Not the city you'd want to put in uproar or be banned from. Not that either of those things are going to happen. Maybe they will. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and read Acts Acts 17. Verses 1 through 15. Now, when they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by, by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, uh, but Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for a discernment it can bring to us, direction, anticipation for what living in uh, this world looks like. And Lord, also for the grace and for the love and for the life that it gives us. Spirit, move in our hearts. We pray to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, we live in a jealous world. We see that in our passage. There are two kinds of jealousy, right? There's the the healthy jealousy like a a, a husband or a wife should have for their spouse. But then there's also an unhealthy jealousy motivated by selfishness or other sinful motives. So today, when I reference the word jealousy, the vast majority of the time, I'll be talking about the second kind of jealousy, the unhealthy kind. So for example, uh, two of my kids are at an age where ownership is a tricky thing. And Christmas sure brings us out all the more. So one, one kid receives a gift, and the other assumes they have equal, if not greater, rights to that object. Uh, no, Watson, I hear from Shiloh. Or no, I hear from Watson as he's running away because that's his response. That's, that's the only trick he has in his book is to run. Sadly, few of us, and let's... If we think about this genuinely, sadly, few of us have grown very much at all in this way. Have you ever felt the moment where the tension rises? You're in the line at Aldi, Costco, pick and save, wherever, and the line is longer than usual, okay? You're already like, "Mm." and someone out of nowhere does this really weird, awkward move where they... They stand next to you. They walk up. They stand next to you, almost just a hair in front of you. And you're like, no, what are they doing? Like, you feel the tension rise. as like the line moves forward, like, just barely. The person in front just happens to, like, lean forward on their other foot. And they, like, move forward just that, that three, six inches, okay? No, stranger, just like my three-year-old. It's my spot in line. I own it. Here's the problem. Ownership is frequently, not all the times, but it's frequently in opposition with the expansion of God's kingdom. If you want to see God's kingdom expand in your own life or in the world around you, you will battle jealousy in your hearts, and you'll also battle it in the hearts of others. This is, this, is, this is basic logic, right? As God's kingdom expands, other kingdoms must shrink. Someone isn't just taking your spot in the line here. The thing you're in line for, the thing, the very thing for which you are in line for, is being replaced with something else entirely. That's going to rattle some people. That's going to rattle your own heart. Like the Jews in Thessalonica, we live in a jealous world. And because God's still, God's, God's still going to grow His church, He's promised it. The gates of hell will not prevail. Praise God. But because of it, we must welcome an upside-down world. An upside-down world in three ways that we must welcome. We must welcome persuasion, we welcome jealousy, and we welcome nobility. So let's talk about these three things, persuasion, jealousy, and nobility. The first one is persuasion. Let's look again at verses 1 through 4. There was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So there, there are two distinct responses here, right? The first one is persuasion. And, uh, and persuasion does not come naturally. Not, not to our sin nature, at least. It takes effort. There's a lot of barriers for Paul as he walked into the synagogue and, and taught for three Sunday, or three uh, Sabbaths in a row, three Saturdays. Some people want to have their sin affirmed before they're willing to hear the other side. And, and that's, Paul's just not going to do that. He's not going to affirm sin. Some people may like what it sounds like and what, like what he's saying, but they can't imagine their life looking different than what it does. And so, well, you know, Paul, that does sound nice. It does, but I, it, it probably can't be true. It can't be true. Some people, uh, let's mention the easy one. Some people are just straight up prideful to ever realize that they would, could be wrong. But Paul put in the effort. The passage says that he reasoned, explained, proved proclaimed this message that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one for whom the Jews had been waiting for centuries, to whom all the Old Testament scriptures pointed. Some were persuaded. Some were persuaded. They were were willing to reassess their beliefs. They are what I like to call fat. I love fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Faithful, available, teachable, right? Simply put, These few Thessalonians uh, were able to conceive that they might not be right. And knowing this, they were open to persuasion. So uh, I'm not the easiest person to be married to or be friends with. Uh, I hope you don't want to not be friends with me after after I share my particularities. But I, I believe firmly in a lot of things. I firmly believe that there are French fries not worth eating about 20% of the french fries at McDonald's, I'm going to toss. It's Just, no. The ones that are, 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 get, are too thin and they're crunchy and crispy or the ones that are just too brown or, or, you know. Anyways. I also believe that the Papa Murphy's Pizza Cutter is the best one they're in. Guys, the Papa Murphy's Pizza Cutter, it has a lifetime warranty. If it breaks you, take it to them, they'll give you one for free. Papa Murphy's Pizza Cutter, best one there is. I believe that milk has to be below 39 degrees or it's too warm. Ugh. I believe hot drinks should be above 135 degrees or they're too cool. The fridge should not be open for longer than 10 seconds or you put in danger all that milk, right? But this is why my wife is such a special person. She is willing to be persuaded that these things really are true. We only use the Papa Murphy's Pizza Cutter. She keeps a nice space in our freezer for my cereal bowl so that when I wake up in the morning, I pull my bowl out of my cereal, or I'll pull the bowl out of the freezer, pour the milk in, it's an ice cold bowl of cereal. My milk is colder than 39 degrees. She let me buy that mug that always keeps my drink exactly at 137 degrees. Do you guys know this mug is out there? I have it, it's so good. She was willing to not be, be, my wife was willing to not just be persuaded and believe that what I said was true but she was willing to have her life be changed by it. That's genuine persuasion, right? Like my wife's willingness to own my beliefs, a few of the Thessalonians were wonderfully persuaded by Paul's message. So let's zero this in on you and me right now. Are you open to persuasion? And this is actually kind of an awkward point for me to make. It's awkwardly, firstly, because the very thing I'm calling, calling out is the very thing that may keep you from being willing to hear what I'm saying right now. Secondly, many of you may already be Christians. So wait, am, am I asking you to reassess and question your Christian faith, your beliefs? Well, kind of. You and I must be persuaded that the gospel is not just something we believed once years ago, and now we're good, but it's something that continues to change what we believe right now. You see, the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who who was born, died, and rose again from the dead, is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. We should always be questioning what we believe, and always be asking if it still aligns with the message of the gospel and the word of God. Here's some additional challenges to us. Are you too busy assessing how something is said that you're unable to hear what is being said? You can't ever be persuaded. My heart feels this, I think, the most with, with, with music, unfortunately. My heart is too busy analyzing how it's being said, played, Right, that I, I, I can't, that I, it's sometimes a barrier for me to hear what is being said through the music, through the words. Because music is trying to teach you something. The word of God is trying to teach you something. When someone's trying to say something to you, you just don't like how they say it, I'll stop talking. I was much longer than I meant it to be. Are you unable to hear what is being said simply because your mind is too occupied with other things in life? That's a miserable place to be in, by the way. That does not sound fun, and you can't be persuaded. Is there a degree of proof you find is missing? By what standard do you measure truth? Is Scripture the starting point? Are you too prideful to realize that you might even be wrong? Not not that I'm talking about you or me, really, just, just that sad person right next to you. Start asking questions, church, about what you believe. When was the last time you were willing to be persuaded by the gospel? We must welcome persuasion. And not only persuasion, we must welcome jealousy. It's a weird way to word it, but let's dive in. Let's look at how the the, the second group of Thessalonians responded, starting in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men! who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting—they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And look down at also in verse 13, because, but wait, there's more. When the, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Wow, okay. So let's break this down. The Greek word for jealousy here is zelao, which is to be or become desirous of exclusivity by something or someone. So this jealousy by nature is exclusive. Does not allow room for any other thing than itself. Does not allow room for the truth including the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And this jealousy motivated that motivated them and drove them to do five things. First they gathered wicked people in verse 5 to their cause. And they literally formed a mob. Second, they worked themselves up and worked others up. It's like the definition of overreacting, yes? They attacked. In verse 5, it just says they attacked the house of Jason. Uh, Fourthly, they drove out godly people. They drove out Paul and and, and Silas and Timothy in verses 9 and 10. And they did it again in verse 14. but But verse 14 was even more than that. They sought retribution for what they thought was wrong. So jealousy, I mean, these are five things. Jealousy is a far more common emotion than we give it credit. It often will look like anger. Some of these things we attribute to anger. But the Jews in Thessalonica were jealous of something they considered theirs. We're not told exactly for what they were jealous control, fame, power, but it was being taken from them. So earnest were they in their jealousy. That when they heard Paul and Silas were persuading others in Berea, they went out of their way, left their city, left their families, traveled 40. Yes, 40 miles. There's no cars here. 40 miles one way. That's at least a day and a half of travel. That's like us traveling to Florida and formed another mob. Like, what were they losing in Berea? What did they have to be jealous about? So great was their jealousy that they went those 40 miles to Berea, it's retribution. One of the, one of the uh, uh, best fairy tales, uh, best fairy tale villains is Mother Gothel from Rapunzel, or Tangled, the movie, if you're familiar. So her evil initially is, is very subtle, very manipulative. But she's also very jealous. And that makes her alarmingly realistic. I think that's why uh, her, her villainy is so... It's so, it's so it's good in the, in, the, in, the, in the story, I should say. Obviously, her villainy is not good, but it's, it's a good story. So for those who don't know, Mother Gothel found a girl, Rapunzel, whose hair is magical. That keeps Gothel beautiful and young. And so she traps Rapunzel in her tower and keeps her as her own. In the movie, she, uh, she sings this song. And in this song, she checks the boxes a lot of how jealousy manifests itself including attack, gathering wicked, wicked people to her cause, and at the end of the song, punishment or retribution, right? So, so here are the lyrics. Um, mother knows best. Listen to your mother. It's a scary world out there. Mother knows best. One way or another, something will go wrong, I swear. Ruffians, thugs, poison ivy, quicksand, cannibals and snakes, the plague. Also large bugs, men with pointy teeth and stop. No more, you'll just upset me. Mother's right here. Mother will protect you. Darling, here's what I suggest. Skip the drama. Stay with mama. Mama knows best. Mother knows best. Take it for your mumsy. On your own, you won't survive. Sloppy, underdressed, immature, clumsy. Please, they'll eat you up alive. See, this, it's getting manipulative. This is not just be like, oh, you're, you're not going to do as well. This is, act- this is attack. Sorry, I had to interrupt. Gullible, naive, Positively gubby, grubby, dizzy, and a bit, well, hmm, vague, plus I believe getting kind of chubby. And I'm just saying, because I love you. Mother understands, Mother's here to help you. All I have is one request Rapunzel, don't ever ask to leave this tower again. Like Mother Gothel's motivation to kidnap and trap a child in her tower for 18 years. Jealousy is a powerful emotion that Paul was stirring and was facing up against in Acts 17. You, being persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, are welcoming jealousy into your life. It it may not be as obvious as the jealousy that Paul and Jason were facing. People aren't attacking your house, banging down your door. It's like, how can we relate to this passage? Are we really facing the same kind of thing? People may gather up against you and slander you, right? Gather others to their cause against you. Man, let me tell you what they did the other day. People may work themselves up and overreact. They may attack you. They may drive away godly people in your life. But it may also be more subtle than you think maybe one of the greatest challenges you face in wanting to read your Bible or in wanting to pray more often might be that, that, that you may not have the strength to face the jealousy that doing those things will bring. Reading your Bible or praying takes, away, takes you away more from your family, your employer, your friends. and All of these are jealous for your time. Not always sinfully so, but sometimes sinfully so. Are you strong enough to face that jealousy? To say, no, I, you are my priority, yes, I love you, but God has to be my greater priority. By choosing to put your phone down and be present, are you, choosing, you are choosing to accept that God has actually made you finite. You are not designed to be at all places at all times for all people. And now, the people on the other end of that phone can be very jealous. They want you now. They want your response now. They want, they want to hear your response to the joke they gave. Is their jealousy for your time the reason that you're not putting down your phone? Are you not tithing and giving God 10% because you fear the loss that it will bring someone else? Are they jealous for your money? Do you choose to not follow Jesus because it would cost too much of the expectations that your friends or family have for you? For God's kingdom to grow, other kingdoms must become small. Prepare for jealousy. Let us battle it kindly and humbly. Finally, as God's kingdom grows, We welcome persuasion. We welcome jealousy, but we also welcome nobility. So verse eleven tells us that the Berean Jews were more noble. So what does nobility look like to Paul or to the uh, to the author of this of Acts to Luke? So let's look at the context a little bit more. The Bereans received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily. So I love I love the Greek. I love the the definition that the Greek gives for this word, eagerness. This eagerness is a lively interest in someone or something, especially with cheerful accommodation for it. Cheerful accommodation. That is beautiful. So what does it mean to accommodate for something? It means to make space for it. So the Bereans received the word, and they they made space for it in their lives. They examined it daily. They weren't just willing to assent to it being true, but they were willing to shape their daily life around it. Jesus is the Christ. Prepare, let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Nobility, this higher moral principle ideals was reflected in the Bereans' eager pursuit of the Lord and his word to truly discern that Jesus is the Christ. Cheerful accommodation, noble pursuit. So, um... A friend of mine recently purchased a hot tub. Cool deal. But boy, it sounded like a lot of work. Uh, They first had to get a permit from the city. They had to hire an electrician. On top of actually paying for the unit, they had to have it installed. It takes a lot of effort to maintain the chemical balance. They had to have a shock treatment on a regular basis. They got to change filters. They got to pay for a higher electric bill. Do you want a hot tub? Let me tell you, prepare it. Room. It's going to take room, guys. It takes time, effort, money. It interrupts your schedule, your routine, daily. Man, it's a lot of effort. But is it it worth it? Is all this effort a noble effort? So They've they've had the hot tub for a bit now, so I, I asked them. I said, hey, is this really worth it? And they said, absolutely. It's the best thing we've ever bought. This is a quote. It's the best thing we've ever bought. We love it that much. It's so fun to go out there at night, especially when it's cold. It's so relaxing. But it's also been a benefit for our marriage. It beats watching the TV when we're not talking to each other, and it gives us time to reconnect. Then They then showed me a, a picture of them on Christmas morning drinking mimosas in the hot tub. I, I, so I asked them how often they used it, and they said every other day. Folks, this is a routine changer, Right? This hot tub took up a lot of space in their life. There was a cost, but they counted it. The normal routine of watching TV at that particular time of night, right? It was permanently changed. It was disrupted to make space for the hot tub. Big change, but a big payout. The Bereans were noble in in their efforts. Like the hot tub, they eagerly made space. They had their lives disrupted because they believed. They knew it was worth it. Our efforts often look a little bit less noble, don't they? Too often in life, we try to change something about ourselves, but we don't actually care enough about the actual change to do it. We convince ourselves that our our efforts are honest. Oh, we're trying so hard. But what we really want... Is for who we are to change without any part of our daily lives or routine to change. What we really want is for who we are to change without any part of our daily lives or routine to be changed. This is not how change works. This is not a noble way of life. Make room, Christian. Jesus is the Christ. The Bereans had eagerness. This sounds beautiful. Do you feel like you've stopped growing as a Christian? Do you miss becoming more godly? It's time to count the costs. In the new year, please do the math and see that whatever part of the world you are unwilling to turn upside down to make room for Jesus is not worth holding on to. But I don't have enough time. There's always more time. If there's time for that new hobby, hot tub, or friendship, there is time for our Creator. But it will cost me too much in my relationships with others. What other commitments that you have already made? What other commitments have you already made, knowing that it costs, it had already cost your relationship something? Is Jesus worth less than those? But I don't have money, but I'm not good enough. He doesn't want me. Ah, but the price, the price has already been paid at the cross. Isaiah 55 says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Do not call this noble pursuit a New Year's resolution? It's more than this. It's better than this. Because the object for which you are making room is infinitely more beautiful and more life-giving. The object for, you for which you are making room won't just be something you are supposed to love in your own strength, but it's something that loved you first. This is what captivated the Bereans. And I understand this sounds like so much pressure, but it's not. This this calling is within reach, church. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We have the Spirit working to give us strength. We have a forerunner who is persuaded by the Father that you were worth dying for. Persuaded by the Father, yes. We have a forerunner who is jealous enough, the healthy jealousy, jealous enough for you to leave his heavenly comforts. We have a forerunner who is noble with all eagerness so as to prepare room in his heart for you. And it, it sure turned his world upside down. Whether it means you're admitting you're wrong in order to be persuaded, or it means facing the challenges that jealousy brings, or it means being more noble in pursuing the Lord, let us see that he is worth it. I'll end with a quote from Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. He challenges us with the following. He says this. So what is the human problem? Is it merely that we have strayed from moral code, or is it something worse, that we have strayed from him? What is salvation? Is it merely that we are brought back as law-abiding citizens, or is it something better, that we are brought back as beloved children? What is the Christian life about, mere behavior or something deeper, enjoying God? Christian, this is not a law we must pursue. It is him. He has promised, he has pursued you with infinite love and might. Let us prepare him room. Let's pray. God, how beautiful this gospel. May our hearts be open to your persuasion. May you give us strength to face jealousy when it rises. May we pursue you nobly. Holy Spirit, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.